What's happening to you these days? Having lots of fun? Believe me, I know some folks that are in for some fun. Let's see it. Take a minute. See what's in it. But you can see how dangerous this could be. But first, we're going to have a little fun tonight, folks. It's time for the Geeky Brummy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Geeky Brummy Podcast. Vodcast. Vlogcast. I still not got the new name. Well, it's one of many choices. You can either listen to this on Mixcloud, you can listen to it on the, all your podcasting services, or you can watch us in video. There we go, all covered. And the plug's <laughs> out of the way. How are we all, gentlemen? Uh, Lee, what have you been up to since we last spoke to you? Um, oh, that's always the question, isn't it? I never prepare for this part. Uh, <laughs> I, I've been um, sort of catching up on some more games and stuff. Um, I've been playing through The Wolf Among Us, um, at long last, and uh, that's that's a lot of fun. Um, just I really like the whole noir vibe of it. It's pretty much the only Telltale game that I've ever had much of an interest in because they keep doing games based on properties I'm not super into. Did you um, fancy Sam and Max playing poker, whatever that game was? Uh, no, <laughs> I mean it's got I mean it's got Glados in it, so that's that's good. But you know. <laughs> It's it's a that's a weird game though that one the the poker one because it's just yeah. like let's put these characters from completely different games and we'll have them playing poker yeah like I don't know who came up with that one but but yeah like um I mean Wolf Among Us even though that is a licensed thing it's probably the only one that I was unfamiliar with the original property mm-hmm. um but it, it so I just saw it as like oh it's the it's a cool like fairy tale detective murder mystery thing. That that's, uh, that sounds good to me. I'm, I'm down for that. And um, yeah, it's just it's you're pretty much your, your interactive fiction type game where it's all about choices and yeah, uh, you never know if you're making the right ones or not. Uh, I always think it's like the natural iteration of the choose your own adventure mm-hmm. scholastic books that you used to get turn up at school in yeah. a big wheeled cart. Yeah, it sort of sits between like the classic point and click adventures and your like like you said the choose your own adventures. Um, the only problem is you can't like you know, put your hand in one page and like turn to that and see if you die and then turn back and be like no I'll take the other two. <laughs> if you want to do that in if you want to do that in any Telltale game, then you better like completely replay the game. Um, but yeah, it's um, been an interesting one. Trying to I've been trying to like make Big B as nice as possible, but the game does not make it easy. <laughs> but that's that's the that's the challenge though, and I'm enjoying that. Yeah, um, and so playing a werewolf means that. You, you, you're gonna have to like go into that cautionary bit of yeah. you're gonna eat somebody at some point, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's like I'm on the final episode now. Just been playing it sort of in episodes, and I'm re- I'm really enjoying the story of it so far. Um, I just really like the sort of weird kind of fairy tales in the modern world sort of concept. It's just a really cool, cool yeah. idea. Yeah, you released a few new videos on your YouTube channel. The house one I enjoyed very much about mm-hmm. how a house can be the plot, basically. Yes. Um, yeah, that, I mean, that video is probably... It's doing really well, and it's also just one of the videos I'm most proud of so far. I'm just really pleased to see how well it's doing. And it's definitely, I'm actually going to be trying to do more stuff like that in future, just because... You know, especially with the crowdsourcing aspect of it, I basically just went to Reddit and asked a whole bunch of people, like, give me some examples of houses. Got this huge list. The video, if I'd have used every suggestion, it probably would have been like an hour long. So I was just like, let's cut all this down to, to half an hour or so. 
could make your own mini series out of them. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Um, but yeah, it was just a, a really fun thing to put together, mm-hmm. and I think definitely taking away some lessons from that one. Of like, this works quite well. I can play around with that. So. Cool. Definitely. Cool. Uh, Matt, what have you been up to the last few days, weeks, months, years? <laughs> Other than desperately wanting a haircut, um, I've returned to Rapture by playing Bioshock Remastered. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been really busy sort of two weeks since we, we last met and um, the stolen hours I do have, I've been replaying Bioshock uh, Remastered because it's one of those, it's one of my sort of comfort games where um, I can just kind of go straight back into it. Um, and uh, I've, I'm at Neptune's Bounty at the moment, but what I enjoy about the Bioshock in general is just how absolutely mad the, the whole environment is everything is um especially for a game back um back in the noughties it was very good at just throwing you into the situation you really did feel like you were excuse the pun but a fish out of water kind of thing you are thrown into this this place and then you've got um splices and all the, the mad um residents of rapture they're all going about their own their, their daily lives bonkers lives <laughs> and you're just kind of in embroiled in, in into it um and then obviously with the things like the um Little sister, the big daddies. It really does make you feel like you are just this, this tiny part of something much bigger. And yeah. um, I, I played uh, the second one and Infinite, but I never got the same kind of feeling, particularly with the second one, which I thought was quite interesting because I would have thought that would have been more engrossing, but it really wasn't. Um, I think the second one suffers from the fact that you have that inbuilt oh I'm already powerful here I'm I'm the big daddy to begin with whereas the first one I think the problem with the second one as well is like in the first game a big part of the appeal is you're discovering Rapture and you're seeing it all for the first time and in the second one you're just going back to a place you already know which is why I think you know Infinite was better for that just because it was a new location that you could rediscover in the same way, although that's got its own problem. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think you're right as well, because as much as I do love it, um, there is a bit of sadness when the very first bit where he goes, welcome to Rapture, and it's like when I first ever played it, my like, mind was blown. This was like, this is amazing. And then you watch it again, it's still great, but you just don't have that feeling again. I think you're absolutely right. It's like, because you know, mm-hmm. you're used to it now. But yeah, it's still really loving it. Um, it's just been a nice kind of distraction, I think. Have you started writing all your work emails with "Would you kind be at the start"? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny you mentioning about Andrew Ryan's speech at the beginning because, like, uh, normally I can reel that off off the top of my head, and it's just completely out of my head right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic game, and it seems like remastered is the new sequel. Is I know it's been a while since the Bioshock remastered games came out now, but there seems to be a lot of games getting remastered over the last few years, with like Call of Duty Modern Warfare, the original one, and we've got Mass Effect coming up as well. The the, mod, the whole Modern Warfare thing is like a, a nightmare because you've got like Modern Warfare remastered, but then they released another Call of Duty called Modern Warfare, just yeah. you know, 
Just to confuse everyone. And also now there's going to be a Modern Warfare 2, the sequel to the new Modern Warfare. Oh, God. You know. <laughs> the sequel to the one that you probably haven't played because you bought the other one by mistake. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the amount of times when looking up stuff for Hitman 3... Uh, recently, just like, they, and I'll get like hit. It's like Hitman Blood Money or whichever one is the original third one. I'm just like, that's not the one I mean. I mean the one that is literally just called Hitman Three that just came out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it comes on to one of the subjects we'll be talking about later with a certain franchise using colours quite frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, Keith, what have you been up to over the last few weeks? Um, I was going to try and be funny and just say I'd, all I'd been doing was watching Zack Snyder's Justice League. <laughs> um, but, I did, yeah, I imagine other people would do that. Um, no, what I've actually done was I finished playing Observation, uh, thanks to Lee covering it on one of his videos recently, mm-hmm. um, which kind of was a game that I was part, a bit aware of but hadn't really thought I'll, I'll play that. Uh, and then I saw Lee's great um, video on it and was like, this looks like a game I would really enjoy. Uh, and did 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 have a, a really good time playing that. And I, I think it was I think it was um, Lee had said that it was um, done by the same people that did Alien Isolation. Yeah, a lot of the same um, team. Because they got a lot of that kind of vibe of that. Um, the the that experience. Yeah, I think yeah. the two, I think the two like lead actors in it were both in Alien Isolation. Yeah, it's well, like um, Emma, Emma was definitely voiced by um, the same woman who voiced uh, Ripley's daughter. But it was it was a really good game because it kind of I like like you were saying about playing the Telltale games. I kind of like a lot of the Telltale games. Played all the Walking Dead ones, the Batman ones, uh, Back to the Future, Borderlands, um, Wolf Among Us. There was some just I kind of like that pace of game where it's an interactive story, which I got mm-hmm. a lot of the um, from Isolation was that kind of like um, I, I was just part of a bigger story that was that was going on around me, and I was just kind of. Um, Mm-hmm. Waiting for the next revelation or uh, thing, and it was it was really it was really nice. The ending was great. It was very much like a seventies um, sci fi film where mm-hmm. nothing's explained. It's like yeah, <laughs> it's alien. Yeah. It's alien. Get over it. We can't explain <laughs> it. We don't know what's happening. Um, so it was very yeah, that, it was very enjoyable. That's why in my video I just made all the two thousand and one comparisons because yeah. they're just right there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's yeah, another which... movie that does not explain its ending, but the book does. But which is why yeah. I was able to like put that in the video. But you know, yeah, yeah. As long as um, we don't get Observation twenty ten, um, <laughs> the year but, we make contact again. <laughs> uh, yeah, I say that, but I did enjoy that movie when I saw it um, way back in the nineteen eighties. I did quite like that. Roy Schneider, um, two thousand and ten, quite quite cool. Helen Mirren, I believe, is also in that. Strangely. As a, as, mm-hmm. Does she play a Russian? She might play a Russian. Who knows? She's played everything. Um, you yeah. say Roy Schneider, and all I can think of is Sequest DSV nowadays. <laughs> it's, it's like the default Roy Schneider. I know most people probably go Jaws. For me, it's Sequest DSV, and I'm having many conversations with a dolphin. So you've got this is where you can tell somebody's age because like you you go for that. I also go for because um, he was in a film called Blue Thunder, which was like Airwolf, but and Knight Rider. But in a helicopter that had a, a not a, not a great, but it had a TV version that starred somebody mm-hmm. else entirely as the same character. I think. Um, I thought you was going to go on about the whole Hogan boat TV series, then, which had Thunder, a, Thunder in Paradise. No, Thunder let's Paradise. not go. Let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> let's not go there. You know, basically that's Danger Boat. boat. Um, the footage. <laughs> yeah, that that exists. That's real. I can't deny its existence. Um, yeah, it's just the name Blue Thunder and Thunder in Paradise. It's just like too close in my head. Yeah. 
the, the other thing I've been doing is I've been I've been rereading um, a digital reprint of the Third World War comic strips, um, done by a bunch of different artists, and I think mostly John Wagner, um, kind of from the late early nineties, mm-hmm. uh, about a kind of like um, authoritarian England in the latter part of that century, which has got stuff in it that it's so incredibly relevant 30 years later on that you just think it's sad that we haven't progressed to the point that like this horrible future people were envisioning 30 years ago is kind of still coming to pass you kind of go yeah i prefer the 1950s futurists who said we were all going to be on mars and everything was going to be groovy and all your dinners would come in trays and instantly you know you would microwave them or rehydrate them yeah. Everything was dome shaped as well, weirdly. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> give me that yeah. future. We were promised Fallout before the war. We got Fallout games after the war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What about you, Ryan? What have you been up to? Uh, so I picked up the 35th anniversary Mario package just because it's limited issue and it's going to be off sale very soon. And it was and it was cheap actually. It was on mm-hmm. sale at the time, but uh, I'm playing Super Mario Galaxy for the first time, and this is my indication of how old I am, because I'm awful at it. <laughs> and it's it's a case of I could do Super Mario Brothers three pretty much perfect when I had my SNES and Super Mario All Stars, and now I try and play Super Mario Galaxy, and I'm like a blind hamster in a ball <laughs> trying to just run around the planets and losing my life very quickly but um yeah i have i've not wanted to play mario 64 because i remember how horrible the control scheme was on that so i'm kind of like that would be the last one i get to and sunshine i played previously because i had a gamecube and i think i actually really like sunshine and i think it gets a bad rap for a mario game mario 64 is definitely not aged well mm-hmm. because i have like replayed it a couple of years back and the camera is the main problem and also just the fact that as you get further through the game and the platforms get narrower, Mario and his inability to just turn instantly does get frustrating. Like, he will walk in a circle and just walk right off the ledge while you're just trying to get him to turn around. Yeah, and it's that very early 3D era of games. And Like, Resident Evil suffers from it, the original Resident Evil, where the control schemes are clunky because nobody's worked out how to do the camera properly or how to follow or having more than one D-pad. 1995 to 2001-ish. It was just like the Wild West of 3D games where everyone's just like, what if we tried this? What if we tried this one? Until eventually they realised, what if you just had context sensitive on the left stick and the right stick is camera? There you go. Everything works now. <laughs> and like the whole Resident Evil 4 third person over the shoulder camera, which now is pretty much every single game ever. Mm. Is all that uses. Mm-hmm. That period is interesting, though, because it is very much a case of level designs were were designed around the control schemes. So, like, the Resident Evil, obviously the angles were there to instill fear because you couldn't see what was coming. Um, But then if you look at, like, the first Tomb Raider, the controls were garbage, but the level, the the way the designers did the levels suited the, the controls as much as possible. And then even though Super Mario 64 came out at the same time, same sort of thing, different different control scheme still terrible but again the way the designers did it the, the levels were yeah you know suited it so i, I guess it's just, just yeah trying to in- fight that inbuilt muscle memory from 15 years 
of knowing what what thumb does what and what button goes where. I just can't. That's, believe that's like the thing that when you, when when you said low like Tomb Raider has like terrible control scheme, I was like, no, it doesn't. And then realised the only reason I know that is because of how many years I played Tomb Raider and it's just burnt into my brain. Is that like <laughs> so therefore, yeah. I, I absolutely objectively, them. no, it is worse than what we have now. <laughs> absolutely love them but then yeah like you Mm -hmm. just they are just bad but you can still love them (laughs) Mm -hmm. i also wonder whether the problem you have with galaxy is because that shift uh, talking of control schemes because that was that was again designed for the wii so that was nunchuck and wand um so i wonder if that the the translation from that to the kind of normal Mm -hmm. normal joypad thing makes it different as well because i but They've not done it great because they put the use the IR blaster art built into the um, the Joy Cons. So I'm like using the Joy Cons in handheld mode, and because it uses the IR blaster, you like having to flick to like do all the Joy Con maneuvers rather than being able to just con- just like press up and move upwards, which is what people would expect to do. But yeah, yeah, it's 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 interesting. And it's definitely worth playing because it's still a fantastic game. But it's, yeah, I don't think they either of them have aged well from a control. Any three of them have aged well from a control scheme. And actually, Super Mario Sunshine is probably the best out of the three controller wise, even though it's like the little ginger stepchild of this series of Mario games. Yeah, I could see that just because, like you said, it's using the Wii remote originally for Galaxy. There's going to be a lot, like, I can go back to Galaxy at any point and still enjoy it, but that's because I'm still playing it with a Wii remote and a nunchuck, and I think that conversion has probably yeah. not been done too great. And the, and the GameCube controller was the closest Nintendo ever got to just a regular joypad in, in terms of every other joypad that's come you know, yeah. since mm-hmm. PlayStation. Well, apart from the, like, the Switch Pro controller, which is basically an Xbox controller <laughs> with all the uh, <laughs> trademarks filed up. <laughs> And the WaveBird is still the greatest controller of all time that Nintendo ever released, I think, personally. Now, I know people love the N64 controller with its three-pronged pitchfork design, but uh, the WaveBird was like the first proper true wireless controller for me, and I loved it so much. I mean, this one. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, other than that, uh, watch the first episode of Falcon Winter Soldier. Um, slow burner, I think. And I think everybody's coming off the back of the high that was one division, and are going to be probably slightly disappointed how fast this is going to move in comparison. But I still think it's a really good show. Nice to bring some more characters back. Uh, not sure about um, the man from Earth playing Captain America, but uh, we shall see what happens. But I'm sure we'll review that later on in the series. But uh, coming up today is, of course, the Comics Roundup from Keith. Next, uh, we'll be talking a little bit about just Zack Snyder's Justice League, which has dropped on Sky Cinema in the UK, HBO Max in the States. Uh, we'll be looking at non-fungible tokens or NFTs, and Lee's really looking forward to that. <laughs> it's got a massive collection already, as, as it is. And we'll be talking about Pokemon, because... We kind of forgot it was the 25th anniversary last month. <laughs> so it's kind of like it's a 25 years plus a month retrospective. <laughs> plus, of course, Lee's Games of the Weeks. Uh, but we'll see you guys shortly.
And now it's time to take a look at some great comics in the pool list. Out right now, we have Once and the Future number 17 from Boom Studios. This is written by Kieran Gillen with art by Dan Mora and colorist Tamra Bonvillain. In this issue, a standoff between Duncan, Galahad and Lancelot is all that's preventing the other world and our world from colliding. But only one of them can be the greatest knight and Duncan better hope it's him. And of course, there's a dragon. This is one of the great uh, fantasy comics out around at the moment, so uh, be sure to check it out. Also out right now, we have Excalibur number 19 from Marvel Comics. This is written by Tinny Howard with art by Marcus Toe. And in this issue, Wild Violets, poisoned by her own venom. She didn't mean anything by it, but what's a girl without a body supposed to do? Just check out that cover. It looks like Betsy and the Quanon have finally got to confront what's happened between them over the years. And coming up soon, we have Strange Adventures number nine from DC Comics Black Label. This is written by Tom King, which shared art duties by Mitch Gerrards and Evan Shanna. In this issue, it's chapter nine. The Pikes are attacking Earth. As the only warrior in all the cosmos to ever defeat them, Adam Strange leads the planet's mightiest heroes in all-out war. The only thing is, evidence is mounting that Adam's victory on Ran may not have been everything he says it was. There is time unaccounted for, circumstances left unexplained. Even Batman has started to wonder about his friend. Sure, they are fighting side by side right now, but who will answer for all the things that got them there? Why, Alana Strange, of course. It's time for the Rainian Princess to go out and set the record straight. The hit series continues on its bi-monthly schedule, and I recommend everybody pick it up. And finally, look out for X-Men number 19 from Marvel Comics coming up soon. This is written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Mahmoud Asur. This uh, issue is described only as Escape from the Vault. I hope this finally resolves the story that has been going on for about a year. And we find out what's happened to X-23, Wolverine and Sink and Darwin. And don't forget, you can check out our Twitter feed on Wednesdays at Geeky Brummy, where I'll be picking out some other great comics that you can look out for on the radar and some comics news in meanwhile. But now back to the main show. So Zack Snyder's Justice League has dropped on streaming services of your choice. It's four hours. It's very different to the Joss Whedon's, maybe never utter his name again, original 2017 release version and we thought it's probably worth having a discussion about it and what we feel and Lee's probably going to (laughs) run away (laughs) because he can see Justice League on his screen and it's all dark (laughs) and gritty and we have we might have a topless Henry Cavill showing up shortly as well (laughs) but uh, let's start off with Matt what was your thoughts on this one Um, so let me caveat by saying don't really watch a lot of the superhero films um and in terms of the dc ones i've seen suicide squad that kind of thing but batman vs superman didn't bother watching because people think it was terrible the original justice league didn't bother not watching except that it was terrible so going into this i was skeptical um but i i enjoyed it i mean i wouldn't rush out to rewatch it but i thought it was um quite a interesting film it kept my attention um i enjoyed um a lot of the characterization in terms of sort of cyborg and the flash um i thought there were some really well coordinated 
um, bits like cinematography as well was was very good. So one of the examples was um, the fight on um, I can't pronounce it Themyscira, yeah. um, Diana's uh, sort of home home, and it was the fight for the Mother Cube initially with Stephen Wolf and the Amazons. I thought that was really really well done. It was quite exhilarating, and there were those kind of bits. Um, it's just there was also a lot of bloat where there didn't need to be bloat. There was also a lot of slow mo, a hell of a lot of slow mo. Twenty-two and minutes I... because IGN went through and counted <laughs> frame of slow motion, and counted it was over twenty-two minutes of slow motion in a four-hour film. See, that's just making me think of Garth Marenghi's Dark. They <laughs> said they used slow motion to extend the episode to twenty minutes. <laughs> And it's like, I think in the context of The Flash and The Flash's segments, I thought initially um, I was a bit in two minds because part of the problem is obviously you had Quicksilver in uh, Marvel and X-Men, that kind of thing. But the way they did The Flash segments were fine and I could deal with the slow-mo to an extent. But even then, it was just like, I don't know what, what Zach, I, don't, I think Zach was being paid by the minute. Just do solo. Ah, the Charles Dickens. <laughs> um, but yeah, overall enjoyed it. I think the other things like the CGI was a bit wobbly. Like the first ten minutes was a bit painful. Um, because especially there was one bit where it just showed Lex Luthor, Jesse Eisenberg in CGI'd water, looking up, and there was no real. He doesn't really appear for the rest of the film and it was just like i don't understand why that was necessary it didn't bring anything to it it was just an excuse to make really bad cgi water <laughs> you know and, and i think that's kind of my experience there were loads of things i enjoyed loads of things i didn't enjoy and i was kind of just left going i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah keith let's hand over to you <laughs> Um, you're pulling a face which like it's either going to be a rant or it's no going to be... i'm gonna i'm gonna be kind of quite tolerant of it i mean i have a, i have a, a a lot of love for the it's dc characters start. um one of the first american comic books i ever bought was a justice league of america comic um which had them fighting starro um uh, the cover was just you know giant um starfish and all of the various members of the justice league the classic lineup of, of batman superman Wonder Woman, Martian Manhunter, Wait. Flash, all the rest Wait, of it. Star, Star is a giant sh- starfish. He's an alien here. Yeah, he's a giant alien <laughs> starfish. And he has little okay. tiny other alien starfish that take over people's minds. It, it just makes think, sense just in the comics. Patrick from SpongeBob. <laughs> like before, before we started recording, I said something along the lines of, like, superheroes are inherently silly. This is why the whole DC yeah. thing trying to be is trying to be super serious. This just proves my point. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I have a lot of love for these characters, and, e- and even kind of Cyborg, who's a much later character, having first emerged in kind of the, the Teen Titans um, stories. Um, and I was kind of hoping, I was very disappointed with the the Justice League, um, which was totally all over the place and made no sense half the time, uh, and just could could be clearly seen as a Frankenstein of a film that swung from um, Zach's darker stuff to Jossie's more, uh, let's just have a joke for no reason, uh, because that's cool. And I did it in Buffy and I did it in Firefly, so I'll just keep doing the same thing. Um, 
and, and again, this it, it reins it in a little bit. It's more tonally uh, consistent. Uh, it's a Zack Snyder film, without question. You know, there's there's points throughout it you go, that's 300, that's Sucker Punch, that's, you know, you can clearly pick out just repetitions of things that he's done in his previous films. Um, it's the J.J. Abrams effect. It's like, if you know a J.J. Abrams movie yeah. with lens flare in the first five minutes. <laughs> Same as you know, a Zack Snyder movie is going to be washed yeah. out, desaturated colours uh, and uh, lots of slow motion. And, and again, there were bits in there that I just thought, oh, it just reminded me of other better films. You know, Joe Morton tickles about on some computers. I'm going, oh, yeah, Terminator 2. That was a good movie. Uh, or like the team coming together and all posing and going, oh, Buckaroo Banzai. That's a good movie. Um, <laughs> it, and again, it was just full of like loads of things that you just go, did anybody ever read the script? Did anybody edit this? It's like you try to make... Um, Barry Allen kind of cute and charming and then he's kind of really weird around people like when he first saves Iris West and and you just go that's kind of creepy Barry don't do that that's kind of weird I don't know what you're doing uh, and the whole how he runs it's no wonder he trips up he's the Joe Biden of superheroes uh, he trips over anything there's nothing there a flash falls over it it's like I run at super speed but I still fall over all the time it's like surely that is not something you would do uh, and Cyborg's too sullen, and it's just dark and full of Cyborg's people saying too "cyborg" for me. For yeah, a I mean, at least he doesn't he doesn't say "booyah" uh, yeah. <laughs> for no apparent reason. If you haven't watched Teen Titans Go or whatever it is, but again, it's all still full of lots of weird things that are like characters saying things for just like effect, like you know, um, Steppenwolf standing in front of a CGI column, going, "Show me." Oh, and, and and you just go, what's going on? That's all all really weird, and things not being explained. And it's like you know, if you've got some uh, knowledge of the comics, you can kind of piece together what's going on. But for, I think for anybody that's watching it that doesn't know anything about DC superheroes, they're just you're being battered to death with like you know, look look at this, isn't it cool? There's a ten foot man who can like you know, smack a hammer into the floor. Uh, and although I did enjoy the Themyscira bit. At the beginning, again, that whole idea is like this is supposed to be paradise, and yet it's really brown. It's like nobody waters the grass. The Amazons have spent all their time guarding the mother box that nobody bothered to water the plants. Uh, it's all gone a bit brown and a bit d- died. So, so it's got the aesthetic of a late two thousands video game. Then, well, that's that's its biggest problem. <laughs> I think that's its biggest crime is it does look like a Gears of DC. Yeah, a, su- yeah. a superhero <laughs> uh, video game from people who have never watched or never read a comic. And and I think that's what sets, uh, you know, I'm not saying Marvel is the best and will, you know, just does everything perfectly, but there's a certain joy to to the love of those characters. You can understand why somebody like Jon Favreau can come in and, and make Iron Man, who literally nobody really ever heard of, and turn that into a hugely successful film and franchise. And the same as what he's done with the kind of Mandalorian. You can feel his passion and joy for the subject matter come through. And although Zack Snyder has said he is a big fan, I just don't feel it. I, I don't feel that these are the characters that I grew up with. And I know people would say, oh, but the, you know, those are comics and these are like contemporary versions. But it's like some essence of that needs to be there. And I kind of uh, like Ben I'm Affleck's Batman. Because I know 
the era that you're coming from is Silver Age and that kind of great era of comics when there is a lot of fun and the 70s and 80s comics do have that. But if you think about Zack Snyder's age, he's at the start of the late 80s, early 90s, dark and broody DC. Yeah. And this pretty much matches that tone. He, he's of the era of like the Dark Knight Returns and those kind of dark, gothic, Batman, Batman has trouble. Yeah, but it might. It's it's not like, it's not it's 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 darker than even like the Tim Burton Batman was in the cinema at the time, which had those campy elements which you expect from Batman. Whereas this is full on that dark, broody. Oh, I'm I'm a monster. I, I'm dealing with internal demons era of comics, and I think that's where Zach's coming from with these films, and that's kind of his childhood. Hmm. I, I, I still don't think, even if he's doing that, it's still not, he's, he's not doing it very well. It, no, it's, and it's, you can, well, you can see with Batman vs Superman, it's pretty much the death of Superman, the comic book reader. Yeah. Uh, and and also the, or the whole kind of like, let's just do Transformers CGI. Why does Steppenwolf's costume have to constantly move all the time and make little transformery noises? It's like, why why is that? Why is that an aesthetic choice that you've made? We've got um, a CGI budget and we're going to use it. Yeah. <laughs> that, that is one of the things, like, throughout the four hours, I was just like, I cannot believe how much CGI is being used. To the point where I was just thinking, I don't understand how how did they manage to act any of this. <laughs> yeah. because... I, I think, because they pretty much replaced Stephen Wolf from top to bottom from the, the Whedon version, uh, because Josh Whedon's Stephen Wolf was... He was... <laughs> The motivation was weak for the character, and that's something Zach has done well. He's actually like giving him a proper motivation and having Darkseid become basically his master, whereas in the Joss Whedon one, you never really got the feel of that. And he's a much more imposing villain as well, even with his shiny Bakophile suit. But um, yeah. I think it was an iterative improvement. I wouldn't say he was great, but I think he was a definite step up if you're comparing it to Joss Whedon's version. Yeah, it's it's definitely an improvement. I don't think it needs to be four hours. I think it's it's overindulgent in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, although it does mean that we do get slightly better character introductions to Cyborg and um, the Flash. Um, yeah, and that's one of the things I took away from the movie as well. Is I really liked Cyborg becoming more of the central. Oh, he's, he's, he's definitely the heart of the movie in in a, yeah. in a sense, yeah. Even though they kind of they try to make it out that it's Superman that's bringing everybody together. No, um, but I think it definitely works better than again the Whedon version, where it's all about Batman and Wonder Woman and everybody else is subsidiary to those two characters. Whereas this is all about how Cyborg's dealing with grief and his own transformation, shall we say? Yeah, at the same time. One thing I did quite like um, was you could kind of tell there was a lot of sentimental value with this cut um, for Zack Snyder because um, obviously originally he had to leave because of the unfortunate suicide um, of his daughter. And then at the end, he dedicates it like for Autumn. And there's a there's a, a bit in it when Batman first meets the Flash, you get a billboard for... Um, I think it's the suicide charity that actually the hashtag um, Snyder Cut raised money for. Um, and the whole kind of the underlying themes, all of sort of 
heroes, however well fleshed out or not they were, there was an underlying theme of loss, trauma, that kind of thing. So I did quite like that aspect of it and I did feel there was a sentimental value to it. However, yeah, massively inflated. And what I found was quite weird was Batman and Superman weren't really involved a lot and when they were it was quite hollow um and i would i'd get that if they were focusing on the flash and cyborg story but then wonder woman got a whole section of basically reintroducing wonder woman um in that sequence in london which i thought was a bit pointless because you've had like two standalone films and and the justice league to know how powerful Wonder Woman is. It's one of those kind of instances where I just think you could cut that entire bit out and it would not have affected the movie in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and I think if you if you compare it to the first Avengers movie, which is pretty much the right comparison to do it, um, with the first Avengers movie, they don't handhold you at all. You don't get it reintroduced to the characters anyway. It's a case of you should have watched all these movies if you're going to watch this film because that's what we've been leading to. You don't need to make 20 minutes explanation of who Captain America is or who Iron Man is because you've watched the films. We're already aware of that. It's straight in and it leads just straight into the action and building up. Whereas this, as you've said, it's pretty much like Zack's like expects that people haven't watched any of the previous DC movies. So everybody needs that full reintroduction apart from Batman and Superman who are well known enough in modern days that you should be knowing the character who that is by the top probably the age of 10. You already know who Batman is, you know who Superman is, but everybody else kind of needs that reintroduction. But um, to me it's it's an improvement. It's a definite improvement. I wouldn't say it's a great movie I, I would be hesitant to say it's a good movie it's definitely overindulgent as we've said if you cut out all the superhero posing and most of the slow motion you could probably got down to a decent three hour runtime rather than a four hour runtime but at the same time it's complete and that's the big difference it's a complete package Whereas rather than, as you said, the Joss Whedon movie, Keith, it's two completely different movies smushed together with a bit of and some sticking plaster and sellotape and a few stitches and then released into the wild. This feels like it has a beginning, it has a middle, it has an end, and then it has another four parts after that. But <laughs> but it, it does feel like this is a mini-series that's been made into a movie rather than two things sellotaped together and rushed out just so they can capitalise and it really shows the difference between studio interference versus having a singular vision behind a movie, I think it's definitely a good example of that Yeah, I think as, as well it's unfortunate that we don't get we won't get to see the culmination of what Zach had had in mind across his kind of like so you know, kind of Man of Steel was his setting up mm-hmm. his vision of the DC Universe, so um, Batman versus Superman, then this, then what? What would have come next? Because there's a lot of setup in this film as well mm-hmm. for for another film, which we're not yeah. going to get see to, to be to be seen. So it's kind of like you know, it's almost like having the Empire Strikes Back, but never then getting to see Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's that's a shame to give us this and then to kind of deny everybody like the you know the ultimate end is a bit of a shame, yeah. I think. And it, that's a bit detrimental because yeah. you kind of it does, you kind of go, you know, there's there's stuff I want to pay off with this because that you've got other characters introduced um, 
in ver- in various parts in the trailer you can see you see um Martha Kent but her eyes are glowing red and that's because she's a she she may not be who she appears to be and that doesn't really pay off within the context of this film as well you're introducing yeah. other characters and name checking other other it's, big it, characters and it's kind of like yeah. you know it would have nice to have had a trilogy that kind of rounded everything out um you know to, some kind to of paraphrase um, terry pratchett it's kind of like a glimpse down the other leg of the trail <laughs> it's kind of like this, this is this is this is what you could have won basically in a bit of bully yeah <laughs> bring out the speedboat at the end yeah, it's it's to yeah. to to pinch a title from a, a Marvel series. It's it's Zack Snyder's What If Justice League. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it, again, that did annoy me a little bit with the epilogue scenes. I mean, it, there were some cameos in there that felt unwarranted. I mean, I was singing Lonely Island on a boat to myself for the last time. <laughs> and if you watch the film, you'll know why. But that is all I could think was that that particular character being on a boat was completely irrelevant to the rest of the plot and it said that it was it was set up for the next film along yeah but for i was a, just saying for a lonely. second i thought i thought you meant that like andy samberg just showed up <laughs> andy samberg and the brooklyn 99 cast it's yeah. another crossover <laughs> that would have been great that would have been great um yeah it's, it's it's a it's a curio it's a definite curio it's a cinematic curio and i think if you've if at any point before you've enjoyed Man of Steel or, or Batman vs Superman or whatever, it's definitely worth seeing what what could have been. It's it's like the end of Bullseye. Uh, this is what you could have won uh, <laughs> if you'd have been good at darts. Um, yeah, but it, you know, I don't I don't hold any any any, any animosity um, no. towards it as a film. I'm you know I think Zack Snyder's got a lot of good ideas. He's a good he's a he's a decent director. Um, you know, given the right material. And I'm kind of looking forward to his um, new uh, uh, Army of the Dead that's, I think, releasing on Netflix um, mm-hmm. very soon. Because um, he did a, a remake of um, Dawn of the Dead yeah. a good while back, um, which I quite enjoyed. Um, for me, I liked his films. So for me, it's I'm glad I watched it. Am I ever going to rewatch it? Probably no, because four hours of my life is reference at the end of the day. <laughs> You only get so many minutes in your lifetime, and I'm not giving him another four of the four hours worth. Just, just do it when you rewatch all the Hobbit films. You, you'll never yeah. notice. It's just on separate screens. Yeah, yeah. And I think talking of the Hobbit films, if if a certain Hollywood actor who who is known to recut things quite a lot and has done like a machete cut of another film, I think if if somebody else recut this film up. But like recut this version rather than the Whedon version, down to something manageable. I think that would be a much better film rather than trying to squeeze everything under the sun in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as long as we never lose the uh, hamburger sesame seed uh, sequence, I'm I'm all, I'm all good. <laughs> Keep that not, classic. Not the Frankfurter sausage. <laughs> See, yeah, like something that Keith said earlier, like that, that first bit. With the flash and the Frankfurt, I was just like, "What is actually? Gonna, what is going to happen? <laughs> Where is the Frankfurt to go in?" <laughs> You're expecting saying, "My name is Barry Allen, and I'm the fastest man alive." <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's 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 an improvement for me. Definitely an improvement. Oh, it's it's a much more coherent piece of of filmmaking. 
Um, mm-hmm. And it and it fits it fits within the world that that, that DC were going for. Yeah, um, you know, qu- quite nicely. Mm-hmm. Any final words, Matt? No, I think you encapsulate it perfectly. It's it's good for what it is, um, but yeah, probably won't return to it anytime soon. Mm-hmm. And I think fans of Zack Snyder's work managed to get something out of it at the end of the day as well. So what I'm learning from all your opinions on this is it is a movie that exists. <laughs> yeah. If you like similar movies, you may like this movie. We're pretty much return. We're, but you might not. We just turned ourselves into Netflix's. You may want to watch this after the end of each show. Yeah. <laughs> here's some. Here's some other suggestions. Yes, you watch things with ninjas in. Would you like to watch Godzilla? <laughs> <laughs> You may have seen the letters N, F, and T in the news quite a lot recently. And you're probably wondering, like most of us, what the hell it is. So basically, an NFT is a non-fungible token. It's kind of like stapling a receipt to an item that you've bought, which proves that you own that item. But do you own that item? It's a digital receipt, basically, that you can attach um, and then through the power of blockchain, which probably has turned off about fifty percent of our audience who hate that word, mm-hmm. um, means I, that I, I like the fact, acid. Ryan, you didn't go through the power of blockchain. <laughs> <laughs> it's more the wibbly wobbly time we know. Like the magic, magical blockchain. <laughs> but yes, through the power of blockchain, it's it's a way of proving ownership of a digital asset. And I've been very careful with the way I phrase that. It's ownership of a digital asset. It's not copyright of a digital asset. It's not reproduction rights of a digital asset. It's ownership of a digital asset. So we've had quite a few large examples recently. So if you remember your memes from back in the many days ago, uh, that what the original Nyan Cat has been sold as an NFT. In the the most great greatest music that was on everybody's iPods and Zooms back in the day. Uh, there's a digital artist called Beeple who we'll probably touch on more. He's been doing a piece of digital art every day for the last ten plus years, and he's sold his first five thousand days of this for a record sixty nine million dollars. Nice, that's a little bit extra. <laughs> yeah, and a few other digital assets, so crypto kitties, crypto punks, you might have heard of as well in the news. Um, for me, it probably took me about two to three days of just reading about it to try and get my head around how non fungible tokens work and digital assets and like the rules and regulations around it. And for some uses, I can see a benefit, but at the same time, it feels very much like that first round of cryptocurrency with that big boom, and I have a feel like there's going to be a massive blip coming up soon where everything gets broken, and there's already been lots of issues around fraudulent claiming of NFTs and ownership and rights of what does an NFT actually give, so lots of kinks to be worked out for this so I could see, if you go from a digital artist point of view, I can see how it could possibly work to say, well, I'm a digital artist, 
uh, you own the first version of this. It's like an autograph, basically. It's like a signed autograph of a piece of work, and you've got a very limited edition of that saying, this is my print, and I've signed this print for you, therefore it's worth more money than if you just had a copy of the asset with no legitimacy on it. So I can see it a little bit from like where we go to conventions, and not that I purchase them personally, but you get autograph collectors who will pay a premium to have a picture taken and signed by a particular person of fame at an artist so i can see kind of from that example but also from the same point of view is that's that's an actual asset that's an ownership that's a fungible item that's that's a real world item that's that's something that's in your hand and then you can sell or transfer it whereas this seems to be more creating scarcity for capitalism's sake and i fully appreciate digital artists need to get paid too and if you want to own digital artwork, this is a way of that representation happening. But at the same time, if you can get the exact same image at the exact same quality by going onto Instagram and just looking at it, what does an NFT attached thing to an original give you over that? Especially if we look at Nyancat, which has gone on it to have its own life on the internet and been many reinterpretation, many memes, many new versions what what does owning the original as we say bring to you and i'm gonna go on to lee now because he's been getting slowly angrier and angrier as i've been <laughs> like playing devil's advocate here okay so like you've touched on kind of my main problem with this this whole money laundering scheme that is the nft system um so like I said, if you you know you've got an autograph, or I see it, I've seen the comparison of like someone buying a painting, or something, and in those cases, that's the only one that exists. You know, it's it's you know that autograph. That's the only copy of that specific autograph on that photo that exists, or you know that painting. There's only one. Everything else is a reproduction, and it's of a lower quality. And I understand all that, um, but this, like you said all these digital assets are reproducible. You can get them anywhere on the internet and they are, to me, the whole concept of NFTs is worthless because all the stuff that you're paying, for, like I've seen like millions of dollars being thrown around and it's like, but you can literally just go to, for, for example, Jack Dorsey's first ever tweet. Um, it's like, you can literally just go find that tweet online. No one owns that. That's the very nature of Twitter, for instance, is it's a shareable medium, like everything you're sharing that, you know, the whole retweet system is part of that. You, you don't own a tweet. You can't just and it's just it's um, one comparison I've seen is like where you can say, oh, I own this part of the moon. It's like, yeah, you can pay that money and say you own that part of the moon. Probably someone will make a nice certificate for you, but good luck t convincing NASA to take you to your plot of the moon. <laughs> yeah, it's like those Scottish lordship titles that you can buy where you own a square foot of land in Scotland, which makes you a lord. Mm -hmm. what, what are you going to do with that one square foot of land? They don't you even go there. Yeah, you can't build on it. You can't do anything with it. It's just a plot of land somewhere yeah. which you have ownership of. Yeah, I'm sure the people in Holyrood would have something to say about whether or not you actually own that land. <laughs> um, but I mean, like, my main issue with it as well is, yeah, like, you talked about digital artists being able to sell their work this way, and 
that was how initially I'd heard about it. It's a way for artists to, and it's another way for artists to make money. And then within a day of hearing that, I, my Twitter was full of other digital artists, much smaller digital artists, having their work stolen to make NFTs. And at that point, I'm like, then they're not that good for the artists, then are they? If people are coming in and, and turning their work into tokens, they're not giving them permission to do that. Like, at what point, that also kind of raises questions about ownership because it's like, well, if the artist who made this had did not give permission for this, then what right do you have to say that you owned this because the artist never made any money off this? Mm-hmm. Some some tech bro like mined it using a bot and then sold it to someone else and the artist wasn't involved. How's that good for artists? That's that's just a new form of copyright theft as far as I'm concerned. You know? And I think yeah. and because like a lot of the stuff involving the blockchain is like supposed to be, you know, we're making it more open, we're making it more accessible and that also means that there's not a lot of regulation of this kind of stuff going on that that there's a, an attitude of just like, oh, well, you know, it's it's free for anyone to do what they want. It's like, but that does lead to exploitation. And if you're not going to tackle that, mm-hmm. what good is this system? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you look at Mike Winkleman, who is Beeple, and who's been posting his art every day, uh, it would be very probably hard to steal one of his pieces of art and sell it as an NFT because... He's very well known in digital art circles and his work's been shared. He's got millions upon millions of Instagram followers. And it's kind of, from that point of view, I, I understand completely that he's he's of a big enough weight that he can he can do it. And the thing of it is when he was selling his NFTs, he was creating a physical version of it. So what mm-hmm. he was doing was getting like a LCD video screen, embedding that in a block of resin with a plate, signing the plate, and then having a digital version of the NFT playing in this plate and in a big in a big mm. case, so it's kind of like you're feeling like you're getting a physical asset with that. So I understand a little bit of that is mainly you're buying the item, but you're getting something alongside that item, of course. Mm-hmm. But as you've mentioned, I can see this being a real big problem, and especially for indie creators who might get big later on, because if you've not found a way to protect your digital assets now or got involved in nfts or understand the old nft process and then one of your pieces of art get big later on somebody might just go back and rip your entire deviant art back catalog and then sell it this is kind of the problem as as well is that like you can't even shut it down from a copyright perspective because it's bots doing it there's literally like there's there's a whole bunch of bots just going around twitter at the moment finding bits of digital art and turning them into NFTs. And it's like, is that really something we want to allow to happen? Because you can't really fight that unless you shut down the bots themselves. You know? Um, but then that, if... that NFT has been minted then, so how do you rest control back of that NFT yeah. if you are the original yeah. artist? Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these artists, they can't afford the prices that have been charged for these things. Mm-hmm. You know? Um just the whole the whole concept of this is just it feels like a bunch of re- rich tech idiots who are just throwing their money around because they can and they they can say like oh yeah I own this thing look how great I am I own the one copy of this and it's like I don't care mate you 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 know 
Yeah, I can I can access that image anywhere on the internet. You don't own anything. How about you use that money for something worthwhile instead of killing the planet with a blockchain? Yeah, and it's it feels like this is a bit like the end game of capitalism. We've run out of physical stuff to sell, so now we'll sell digital items instead because everybody already owns the rich people already own too much stuff physically to get away with selling it to them again. I mean, for a perfect example is like NBA Top Shots, if anybody's heard of that, which is basically NBA selling video clips of NBA games with like Michael Jordan doing a, a dunk and they've been selling them like trading card games. So they've been selling blister packs where you can like, you might find a rare NFT in this blister pack. And then some of them are going for like thousands upon thousands of dollars. Like a, a popular clip for LeBron James or Michael Jordan might be going for ten, twenty thousand dollars over a normal just clip of someone sat on a bench picking their nose, maybe. Or I, I don't know what's in these top. I, I've got an I've got an idea for that. How about like a fully searchable database online where you can just put those videos, and if people want to see those cool shots, they can just look them up. I'm going to call that's, that. I'm going to make the tube. Yeah, you, you tube. Yeah, that's, that sounds really good. That sounds yeah. really good. That's a great idea. Yeah, but then it's like Odin. It's basically, it's probably an evolution of the FIFA Ultimate Team and NBA Ultimate Team kind of games. Where I mean, I mean, that's got its own problems, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it kind of feels like it's the evolution of that, where it's kind of, oh, I've got this super rare card. Mm-hmm. Where I'm going to be the only person who owns this super rare NFT for for the foreseeable future, and they're going to be traded, aren't they? It's going to be the same as crypto. It's going to be the same as stocks. It's going to be traded on the market afterwards. Uh, the one benefit that for digital artists we've meant that is is when an item can get resold, they can put like a certain level of profit into that. So if you resold one of Beatles' artworks, I think it gets like a ten percent cut for perpetuity. So if you resold that art, he'd then benefit from the reselling of that art so it's not kind of a one and done and it's trying to create a sustainable income i mean he's not going to spend i don't think he's going to spend 69 million dollars anytime soon but for smaller artists i can see the the intonation behind it and how they were trying to make it so it's much more freer but, but again, you get, you're getting into lot. the same kind of area that like monetization for youtubers that if you're not a famous artist who's who's making a lot of money for it a small artist is never going to make 69 million dollars from selling their digital art it'll be pennies it'll it'll be essentially worthless for them to go through the whole process and Mm -hmm. the whole blockchain stuff anyway is hugely environmentally unfriendly the energy and power it takes to do all of this stuff but it, yeah. for me, for me, it, it, it's just utter nonsense. I mean, I'm, I'm I'm of a generation that finds this whole thing sometimes mind-boggling. But the whole digi- it's, it's worrying the the phrasing of it. I agree wholeheartedly with everything Lee was saying, and also with, with yourself. But the, but this idea of ownership, this create this idea that people are out there craving like I need to own that. That's mine, and I've got it, and I can hoard it away. Um, but the, I think the worrying thing down the line is when when these people that own this stuff finally somewhat find some way to take it away from everywhere else because it's fine at the moment you can laugh at them and go obviously you've got more money than sense if you spent 69 million dollars on something that just says you own it but i can go and look at it on my phone on my watch on my tv uh, i can get get a printout done at boots and put it on my wall 
and do all of this kind of stuff with it. When it gets to the point where they go, that then gets removed and it's it, it, the ownership is, is controlled by somebody, that's slightly worrying. If somebody's well, buying up assets... This kind of already happened. Um, you might have heard about Martin Shkreli, who owns the one copy of like the latest Wu-Tang album, because uh, they made one copy. But like, I think the idea was that like someone would buy it and then they'd copy it and put it on the internet or something like that. But this guy, he bought it and was like, well, it's mine now. No one else gets to hear yeah. it. But the thing you got to remember about him is he also bought the rights to a HIV drug and jacked the price of that up 5,000% and also then got arrested on security frauds or something like that. So this is the kind of person that I associate with all of this. Yeah. And that's that's kind of my problem with it. Yeah, And it, it's the snowball effect from when back in the, the, the dark old days of copyright law and patenting when Disney started extending the patent so they would control Mickey Mouse and it's now something ridiculous in the States like 70 years after the creator's death that you own the rights for and they haven't tried to do it again this time around and I think they're trying to they release loads of Steamboat Mickey merchandise so they could get away with saying it's, it's a it's an in off it's an in asset trademark rather than having it on copyright but it's it's the culmination of that and an intellectual property and it feels like the IP laws we have now are very much one-sided and especially with the DMCA it's all written to the benefit of the copyright creator as a YouTuber I could, yeah. I could go on for a while about content yeah. ID and DMCA yeah. and all that Yeah, but it, it's very much written and one-sided and it's not for the benefit of society more, it's, it's benefit mm. of people to make money yeah. and the whole point of copyright in the first place was it was to benefit the creators for the original vision and then after the 20 years yeah. have expired it becomes a benefit to society it's like all the creative commons stuff that when i was doing videos and photographs and putting them online through mm. through sharing sites like Flickr, um the idea that you could put creative commons on there which would either allow people to use it f fully and freely and alter it and do whatever it is or use it and credit you and that was the, that was the payback then and a lot of people still didn't do that you know people would just pull stuff off the internet and, and, and use it. And we're all guilty of doing that. We find a nice image and it's like, oh, I'm going to use that for some project well, or whatever. Nice video trailer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's kind of like, it, it's, it's, and because it's all digital, I wonder whether, it's, again, that it's it might force people into stopping doing physical things in one way because uh, if you can make money in, in, in one sense, because I've seen a lot of kind of like marketplaces spring up where people have got like pieces of digital art and, and people are trying to um, kind of monetize every, everything that they create. Um, but then I, then I kind of think I, I hope that we get somebody like Banksy who does find some way to do a digital decay. So somebody spends £120 million on a piece of Banksy digital art, which somehow disappears and vanishes and becomes that, nothing. That's actually apparently a thing with NFTs already. Apparently, ah. some of them have already disappeared because just like because it is essentially a link that you're buying. Yeah, the links expired in some in some cases, so they spent millions and they basically have yeah. nothing. Yeah. Also, we don't, we don't want any global uh, EMPs to happen. Yeah. We, no, no big solar flares that wipe out the entire digital net, yeah. digital network. Yeah, it's like going back to my analogy earlier of it's it's the receipt that gets stapled to the item. I think. If to carry that through to the next generation, 
it's like owning the receipt but not the actual item yourself and then trying to sell that receipt on for the value of what the item would be yeah. is, is where it feels like it's, it's not, not good for us have... Brits who, if, like, if you ever have to take anything back to the shop nobody's ever got the receipt <laughs> yeah but it's kind of on top of that it's you're not owning the copyright because a lot of creators have been very clear that this is buying the asset not the copyright to that assets they can go away and make t-shirts prints new versions etc iterate and do whatever they want with it so what are you actually buying you're buying air that's basically what you're buying (laughs) you're buying ones and zeros you're buying the slow death of the planet that's what you're buying (laughs) it's it's value isn't it i mean um everything all three of you talked about is absolutely right it's it's not about art necessarily it's about value it's about the money and the reason why i struggle to get my head around it is because i will forever be poor because i don't understand how any of that works and it's it's exploitation like ownership and affluency is the issue where Grimes can release a one-off video NFT and sell it for six hundred and thirty thousand um, dollars. You know, I think the Gucci, so the Gucci Ghost sold for um, sixty-nine million more than the original Monet um, painting of Nymphies. You know, um, and like you said, it's just a receipt because it's it's all purely value-based rather than actually this is art and it's artist integrity and the only people who are going to profit are people who are already pro- that don't need it effectively oh, this it's, is it's why I call it money laundering yeah. it basically is that I think it's also the tax write off benefit of it and we've seen it in cases where the extraordinarily wealthy will in, invest in art, get their art valued for a certain amount and then it's, say yeah. well I, I bought art therefore I funded art yeah. therefore give me some tax back please yeah, it's that whole that whole field of just we'll fiddle with our money and put it in all these useless places so that the taxman doesn't get it, you know, so that, that money can't go on to do useful things yeah. like fund a school or a hospital or, you know, something that might benefit mankind and not slowly kill the planet. <laughs> I'd be interested to see, like, comic artists and what their interpretation of this is because in the traditional model, if you like, if you create comics for 2000 AD, you usually sign over your rights to all of that work as a kind of part of the contract is you no longer own any of that work. So would 2000 AD swap to an NFT model, for example, where they own the NFT to that piece of artwork, but then the creator can retain copyright? That work? I I severely doubt it would, and 2000 AD would prefer to own all aspects of the art. Yeah, it's a, it's a weird thing as well because if you're kind of distributing something like that, you're kind of distributing the art through the normal method of people buying the book because you're not gonna you're not gonna get it in a in a, any different format. In in you know it's gonna be it's not gonna be suddenly huger. So it's kind of like what's the you know I could I have an in the past owned original pages of art because that's a physical thing and that's quite quite cool and I'm still a bit still not 100% on board digital comics it's a convenient way to read something but there's something like having you know books a physical thing that I can hand down you know I haven't got to worry about um, not having a computer or an internet connection or anything like that Um, and physical things you know 
um, you know, it's it's like um, uh, Parks and Rec. Um, you know, you bury your gold next to your log cabin because that will be worth something one day. You know, <laughs> somebody will need that. Um, but all these digital assets and stuff, it's kind of like it's worrying, especially if you are, if you're not the artist who can apply this 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 to it at the moment of creation. Yeah. Um, that that you're stamping your you know almost like a um, kind of brand or a, a whatever they used to do with silver or whatever it is to mark mark where it's been created so instantly so it can't be stolen because that was the thing once this kind of story broke a lot of of the comic artists that I follow were kind of worried and it was happening that NFTs were getting applied to pieces of their art that you know they just had no knowledge of and you know it's mm. it's it's a worrying trend if that's what is going to happen because if bots are doing it there's no control there's no legislation there's no um regulate yeah. regulation for this to happen and then what do you happen once it's happened like lee said you know how do you how do you rest back control yeah and it's like as you mentioned about disappearing assets i mean we've, we've there's the famous example in the uk of where somebody sent his old hard drive full of bitcoins to a landfill and he's trying to bribe the council by saying, right, I'll give you 20 million pounds worth of Bitcoin if if you, like, help me have a concerted search for, to find this hard drive. And I can see the council people just being like, what is Bitcoin? <laughs> Considering councils are running, like, three decades behind everything else. Yes. <laughs> and he's got, like, hundreds of millions of pounds on this hard drive, which he knows is in landfill. Oh, if um, only you'd put it in a bank where it might have still got value. <laughs> at the same time, it's, it's about being very careful with your digital assets at the same time. Is if you do own something, how how do you make sure? And I, I, I freely do disclosure, I own some cryptocurrency. And it's more for the case of I own it in case it ever does pay off and then I can <laughs> quit work and, and run away and like, have lots of money. But <laughs> Can you back it up? Can you make a duplicate backup of it just in case? Well, what you have is what's known as a paper wallet. Uh, so what you do is you print off the address and you keep that in a very safe place and don't tell anybody where it is. But that means that then you can find your wallet wherever you are in the world because you have a paper version which is this this 26, 28 length of string of characters is your address and that's where your money's kept. That's why you have to be very careful with them. And you don't tell anybody where your address is because they can just say, yes, that's my money. I'll put it on an exchange and sell it all. See, I'm never going to be so, any good at this. I put my keys and my phone down and I forget where they are two minutes later. <laughs> yeah, but if if I didn't have any crypto, I would feel a bad geek for running this podcast. <laughs> like, I feel like I need to own some of it to understand how it works and get involved in the process. Uh, I invested in Funko Pops. That'll pay off in the future. Yeah. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. Those beanie babies will pay <laughs> off one day. <laughs> those, those beanie babies, they're still stashed away. They're, 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 they're waiting their moment. <laughs> but that is what I was just about to lead on to was this feels like the digital equivalent of buying Funko Pops or rare Funkos or that whole thing about creating value from something valueless and creating scarcity, which is what society runs on. The only way you can profit <laughs> yeah, the only way you can profit is to create scarcity. And we've seen it even with like as you Lee's just shown you there, one of the um oh, you mean like this one? Amiibos, yeah. And how ridiculously <laughs> expensive was that amiibo at one point? Yeah, I was lucky because I got it pretty much when it was still available. So Yeah. But uh brings us on neatly to Pokemon, which we'll be talking about shortly. 
Hello and welcome to the portion of the show where I talk about my games of the week for the past two weeks. Last week's game of the week was Mundorn, a hand-drawn horror game. Set in a secluded valley in the Alps, you play as a man returning to his old hometown following his grandfather's mysterious death and he discovers a series of macabre secrets within the town. While a fairly standard premise for a horror title, what makes Mundorn stand out is its striking visual appearance, with everything in the game appearing like it's been hand-drawn in pencil, even within a 3D environment. It also looks suitably spooky, evoking a Wicker Man atmosphere in its presentation, and that's always a good thing. Mundorn is available for PC, as well as the Playstations and the Xboxes. Game of the Week this week is It Takes Two, the latest co-op adventure from Hazelight Studios, the creators of The Way Out. Set in a quirky world of sentient books and toys, you control an estranged couple as they try and fix their relationship while working together to navigate this strange place. The game looks to be a wonderfully inventive mixture of mechanics backed with a focus on co-op. It's a visual treat too, and with all of this, I have to make it Game of the Week. It's available on PC and the Playstations and Xboxes as well. And with that, let's get back to the main show. Pokemon is uh, 25 this year, or it was last month, but uh, we uh, didn't cover it then. I think we were kind of busy with all our anniversary stuff at the time, so that's that's our excuse, I will say. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, 25 years since the release of Pokemon Red and Blue on the original game. Well, Red and Green, I should say. Uh, in Japan um, on the original Game Boy back in the day and um, yeah we're going to sort of just have a little discussion about sort of our experiences with the franchise how we got into it and how we feel about it today and yeah just have a chat about where how we all feel about Pokemon and all our memories associated with it so uh, Matt how, uh, what's sort of your relationship with Pokemon? Um, so I first encountered Pokemon around my best friend's house at the time and he had Pokemon Red on Game Boy and I was like what is this and he was like where have you been it's everywhere Um, and so I started playing watching him actually play over his shoulder Pokemon Red and then suddenly it exploded in school Um, obviously you had the trading cards you had the anime Um, my parents wouldn't let me watch the TV series and they wouldn't buy me any Pokemon cards because they were saying it's a fad. And I think looking at it now as an adult, it's probably because they were scared of just how much money it would probably cost them. Um, But Pokemon has been a really big part of my life these days, even though I'm not sort of like avidly involved in the scene, it's, there's a massive psychological element, which obviously we'll talk about later, but it's it's something that has been constant throughout my life. It's something that myself and people my own age, I could go into a room full of strangers and we could talk about Pokemon and you can make connections. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those kind of entities that is just... It's, it's had its sort of waxes and wanes, but it's always been there over the last 25 years there there is always some some pokemon somewhere you are never too far away kind of like the kevin bacon six degrees (laughs) thing you are never so far away from something that's pokemon whatever the medium is but there is always a pikachu hiding somewhere in your house (laughs) (laughs) mine's right there (laughs) 
Well, they do say rats live very close to humans. So. <laughs> Electric mice as well, apparently. Yeah. Same. And obviously the Pokeball as well. <laughs> we pulled, I already pulled up Amiibo, saying it. <laughs> but, I mean, just to put it in perspective, um, the Pokemon franchise is the largest franchise in the world. It's a $100 billion industry. It's bigger than Star Wars, bigger than Disney. It is literally the biggest brand in the world. Um, and there's multiple reasons why, but it's also just fascinating because um, it's it kind of hit a, a sweet spot where it did everything that meant you didn't really have to be involved in the hype to know what it was or to be able to understand what it was or what it is even. And I think, like you mentioning, like your parents saying that it, it was a fad and they didn't want to get you involved in any of that. It's kind of funny that we're talking about 25 years later, which kind of shows that unlike a lot of other things from the mid to late 90s, it's endured a lot more than, say, some of the actual fads of the 90s, like <laughs> Pogs and... <laughs> Pepsi Clear. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it was that. So if you just just take that sort of snapshot, so late, late 90s, early noughties, you had obviously the Pokemon games, then you had the the anime, but then you had the Pokemon cards, which were mm-hmm. everywhere. Originally brought out by Wizard of Coast '96, mm-hmm. it's now um, one of the top three trading card games. But that was everywhere. Um, it got to a point where I remember um, Walker's Crisps were selling Pokemon Tazos in the crisps. There was a massive craze of you would go after school buy ten bags of Monster Munch. And you'd be trading the, the, the Tazoos as well, the holographic Tazoos, yeah. on top of the Pokemon cards. Yeah. You know, you had bouncy balls with Pokemon then. It was every kind of medium you could think of, it was there. There was something Pokemon related. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really think... Obviously, you have other brands like Star Wars, where you know, Star Wars is everywhere. But to this degree, and also um, in terms of a, a kind of especially back in the 90s, it was appealing to everyone, really. Um, it didn't matter if you, like, what gender you were, what sexuality you were, um, even age, to be fair, it was quite accessible to everyone. Um, and even now, like, if you look at the games now, if we're talking from a, a sort of gender identity and that kind of thing, you'll notice they haven't, they've phased out gender now um when you create a character it's not are you a boy or a girl it's just what do you look like and for a lot of people um especially sort of my generation and like now growing up now there's a lot people can identify with with pokemon from the extravagant um kind of settings and characters to the pokemon themselves the vibrant colors what they represent that kind of thing there's so much that permeates uh i guess um what makes people happy what what they enjoy what they can bond over and yeah so it's it's funny you kind of mentioned about like the gender identity stuff because like my introduction to pokemon was actually the anime um and then it was then i found out there was a game and that's when i ended up getting a game boy for it um but like i the with the anime there is just this persistent thing about Jesse and James being gay icons. 
particularly how often James was wearing women's clothes. Yeah. It just, you know, like all of that, like to this day, they're still like held up as like, oh yeah, look, look at these bisexual icons and all the rest of it. And it's just like, none of this was explicitly in the show, but <laughs> the LGBT community just latched onto those two. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's that, I mean, recently um, there was a Galarian ponytail that blew mm. up in the LGBT community um, because its colours were very close to um, sort of the trans uh, pride colours. Um, everything about it, kind of its abilities, that kind of thing, it kind of resonated. Um, and mm. yeah, you're absolutely right. So obviously Jess and James are a perfect example, but then even just looking at all of the characters, um they all have their own really unique look and same with the pokemon they're all quite unique you can't really define you know you had people you had pokemon like jinx who blatantly was like a drag queen you know just looked like a drag queen i do like that i do like the episode that revolved around jinx of the anime got banned (laughs) (laughs) because of what jinx looked like you know exactly and it was just um it's it's that it, it's a perfect storm of um, how accessible it was, and also just the concept itself. Um, end of the day, it was these cute little creatures fighting each other, but very sort of basic rock paper scissors style. Not not something like Yu-Gi-Oh, where you've got millions of different cards do different things. It was fire like fire gets killed by water that kind of thing it's very basic stuff and it was just yeah accessible <laughs> i mean they they still kind of have that as like the core because all the starters have always been fire water and grass which are all good against each other um but it's also you know you're saying about like how unique the designs of the pokemon are one thing that i have definitely noticed through following the franchise for all this time is that i think every pokemon is someone's favorite Except probably the keys. <laughs> no one likes the key one. Because, um, like, you know, like, I think there's been so many, like, Pokemon where I, I was like, I don't really like this one. This, And then you'll find someone online who's just like, I, I adore them, they're, they're the best. And, mm. you know, there, there are people who, I mean, as someone whose favorite Pokemon is Meowth, and the amount of people who find Meowth annoying, but I'm just like, no, he's a fun talking cat with a New York accent. <laughs> the best. Um, but yeah, yeah. Like, I think that's the thing that sort of helped it endure as well, is that people have kind of formed those relationships with the Pokemon themselves and kind of, this is my favourite. And and even with new ones coming in, there's still more that they can kind of latch on to. So I've definitely got favourites across the different generations and stuff. So Even though, even though like, weirdly, I don't really play many of the actual games these days. Um like the last sort of main series game I played was Omega Ruby, um, but like the and the games that have kind of excited me the most over the past few years have both been from Namco. <laughs> it's because um, Pokken was really good, and that was I was all all about Pokken. That was such a great game. Basically, the Tekken team making a fine game with Pokemon, and and then now it's new new Pokemon Snap is out next month and like yeah like more pokemon snap i've been waiting 20 odd years for that <laughs> yeah uh, yeah and you mentioned hype earlier and i think like my first memories of it was the fact that we had it so much later in the uk and europe 
compared to Japan and the US. So it was like 96 in Japan, 98 in the US. Uh, sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah, was it? Yeah, September 98 in the US, and then we got our version in like 1999. It took so long to get over here. Mm-hmm. But the hype train had already built up to the stage of this. We'd had the anime on. You'd, you'd pretty much heard about this. You'd known about the legendary Mew being hidden away in the game. There's all the stuff about missing no, and it was like it was that burgeoning start of the internet when people were talking online about, oh, there's this crazy new game out, and everybody's going to want to play it, and it's going to be amazing. And I think, like you're saying about like how long it took us to get to get it. I think we heard about the controversy around it in Japan because of the Porygon episode that caused so many seizures before we even got the show, and it's like, you know. <laughs> Mm-hmm. kind of shows you how long it took that we had this big national crisis around it in Japan and yeah. we were just like what's Pokemon? <laughs> <laughs> For me it's a memory of because m- m- both my sister and I had Game Boys at the time, we were very lucky and I made sure that we I bought red and blue and a link cable and the first couple of hours was me playing on both cartridges so I could get enough of the starters so I had the full starter team like playing my game <laughs> It was like I felt like a massive cheat doing it, but it was kind of like turning up at the school next day with like I've got them all. Screw you, I've got them all. <laughs> but it's it's that like as well like your social status changed with Pokemon. I I once um, got a Dark Team Rocket uh, trading card pack, and I got a shiny Dark Team Rocket Charizard, which was like supposedly insanely rare. I was treated like a god for two days until <laughs> someone stole it and it caused a massive controversy in school. Like It was the, the thing, the flavour of the month. Um, Did you ever get it back? No, never got it back. <laughs> there, there was a rumour that someone found it ripped up outside, but that was never proven. But you know what I mean? It was just like... That's like an <laughs> NFT now. That's worth money. You wanted that dollar. <laughs> but I think... But I think, like, because you you sort of bring up the link cables and stuff, that's a big part of probably why it took off the way it did and became such a cultural phenomenon, because as a franchise, it encourages, like, communication and engagement and people talking to each other and, and, you know, trading with each other. Because, I mean, like, even the 25th anniversary video that Nintendo put out the other week, they were showing off the various different ways that the games have linked up in the past. Like, you, know, you had the link cable and you yeah. had, like... Apparently, Diamond and Pearl had, like, a a thing where you could put a web a code into a web browser or something. I don't remember this, but apparently it was a thing. And, of course, now everything's all hooked up online, so it's all done through Wi-Fi. And it's, like, the fact that that's been a core part of it, even, even now, like, you've got the two different versions and they've got different Pokemon and you need to trade with people in order to get... Or do what you did yeah. and just play both <laughs> and just yeah. feed them all in off one version and then cheese it cheese it yeah. <laughs> but you mentioned that i mean pokemon go which i've i've recently gone back into and i've said this mm-hmm. multiple times in the game recently it's had like a kanto celebration weekend for the 25th anniversary and in that it was a choice of you bought your ticket for the event and you bought a red ticket or you bought a green ticket you couldn't buy both and then you had to trade with your friends on pokemon go if you wanted to get the entire collection Mm-hmm. And it's kind of again that that kind of theme all the way through. And it's always been a technologically 
innovative series. Oh, complete that <laughs> technologically innovative series because we've had Pokemon Snap, as you mentioned, which was very much using the Game Boy camera. You've had um, oh, that was that was an uh, N64 game. Sorry, yeah. but I think you could um, hook it up to like the printer for the Game Boy. Yeah, um, print out, out print out your little. Pictures yeah. and stuff. It was terrible because the printer was terrible. But you know, <laughs> it, was, it was innovative for the time. You know. It's... Yeah. But I remember it was heavily sold with Super Game Boy at the time, which was mm-hmm. a SNES cartridge that you popped your game cartridge yep. into, and then you got a color experience of playing you Pokemon. Had, you had Pokemon Stadium as well, which was the same deal. You plug your Game Boy game into it, into the mm-hmm. thing that goes into the N64 controller, and then you can put your Pokemon into the N64 game and fight them in there. Yeah, um, and I think you had HD Rumble was I think Pokemon Stadium was one of the first games with the Rumble pack. Probably, I know that also there was around that time there was the game where you could speak to Pikachu. So that was like some very, very early, very broken um, voice recognition software. Yeah, I remember that with a little microphone. Yeah, and they yeah. still having it now. With like, you can get the little Pokeball to go out and play Pokemon Go with, or the, the mm-hmm. wristwatch where you can press mm-hmm. a button and it auto catches the Pokemon for you. Yeah, or spins the Poker stuff and stuff like that. And it's it's still it's constantly iterative, even though the core game itself has never changed. But going back to what you were saying earlier, Matt, about how it's an inclusive franchise, and I think the world of Pokemon helps that. You start off as a twelve-year-old, and you're allowed to go and explore. And there's nothing nasty out there. And even if your Pokemon loses a battle, it faints and you can go and recover it. And even if you lose all your Pokemon, you just get taken straight back to the center. So there's never a feeling like that you're not progressing in the game. And when you think about the big bads in the game, which is A, your high school best friend slash bully, or even if you look at Team Rocket, the most hapless Matthew organization in history. <laughs> it's kind of, you always feel like there's no danger to the world and that you can freely explore and you can go find in the long grass and there's no risk to you going and exploring that world. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like, Team Rocket are definitely less inept in the, the game, but even then, the fact that a 12 year old can just waltz into their HQ <laughs> and take down their boss in a Pokemon battle. Is kind of you know I think I think most twelve year olds that's kind of like a power fantasy of being able to oh yeah I took I took on the adults and I won because you know kids are better and all this sort of stuff I think that it kind of feeds into that a little bit. <laughs> but also there was there was some really weird kind of educational mechanics as well because remember in um in silver and gold they introduced the thing where you could uh, send some of your winnings to your mum and she banks it for you so you have oh, your yeah, own savings account like that, in yeah. Pokemon <laughs> you're just there being like just. Helping yeah. loads of like the, young... the main like weird mechanic from Gold and Silver I remember is the phone where like the youngster Joey would just keep t- calling you up to tell you about his rat. It's like, yeah, I get it, Joey. I get it. You don't have to keep telling me. But one of the most heartwarming things again, which just come off the back of this, and remember from a few years ago was Twitch plays Pokemon, mm-hmm. and that was yes. an amazing thing to see that a group of, frankly over 100,000 idiots in a chat room <laughs> trying to play Pokemon as a group experience and still managing to complete the game somehow. Yeah, It's it's like a great testament to the game that it forces cooperation out of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I guess um, sort of the question of what will we be seeing, like a fifth anniversary, that kind of thing, I would say absolutely yes. Like, I... I would not be surprised if this outlives all of us um just because of how much of a 
a sort of with there's so many elements to it there's a nostalgic element um whether you're a sort of a geek or or, or not you have it's likely you've experienced it and like I said you can still bond over it there's still a sense of community it's very inclusive and just the sheer volume of stuff out there there's bound to be something that will keep your interest um i mean it's inclusive until you get to the real hardcore people who like i've never seen people who hate pokemon as much as those people (laughs) (laughs) but people are obsessed about playing the game as well like knowing the meta for every single game and having spreadsheets of the moves it kind of like it's got both ends of that spectrum of people who hate pokemon for its existence (laughs) and people who hate pokemon because the meta's been broken again and they need to like reach resort their entire day <laughs> or they get really upset because they've noticed that a tree has been copied and pasted in the newest game and it's just like yeah that's how open worlds work they copy and paste the assets because it will take a million years to make the game otherwise yeah. <laughs> learn how game development works um, you mentioned about the game franchise continuing on forever i mean i think it's fair to mention as well probably game freak themselves as a studio probably feeling burnt out mm for developing 25 years worth of Pokemon games, and you've seen a lot more freedom of the Pokemon license within Nintendo to go elsewhere in the last think, few years. I think, like, with Game Freak, there's definitely been a problem over the last few years because it's been kind of annualised, and you can kind of see that to a degree. Like, Sword and Shield is definitely lacking in some areas from what I've seen. Like, it's not a bad game, but you can tell that, like, they could have done with an extra year of development just for some extra polish and learn to make it make you know have it look a bit flashier and because it's the first time that the main series has been on a home console so they could have done something with it but it just it feels like we made it look a bit prettier than the game than the handheld games but it's still basically the same thing but then you then you look at the releases and you realize in 2016 they did sun and moon then they did ultra sun and moon a year later and then they did the let's go games and then it was sword and shield and it's like yeah they haven't had time to make this properly as far as i'm concerned i think i'm glad to see that the diamond and pearl remakes have been shipped out to a separate studio which sort of to me says that nintendo are trying to give them a bit more space Uh, at the same token of that they're probably trying to eke a bit more money out because as you mentioned it's the biggest franchise in the world and it is nintendo's greatest cash cow Mm-hmm. And Mario probably pales to insignificance in the amount of money they've made out of Pokemon over the over the decades. Although there is there is always the technicality that it isn't technically owned by Nintendo, even yeah. though it, it it is. <laughs> yeah, it's like they own a certain percent, and then they it's own a, another company that owns a bigger what percent. It, yeah, what it is, it's Pokemon is officially owned by the Pokemon Company, and a third of that company is Nintendo. And then it's then it's Game Freak, and then it's Creatures, who are the I think the other developer are involved in the series. The three yeah. of them jointly own it under the name the Pokemon Company. So Nintendo tend to not treat it as if it's one of their first party franchises. That's why you'll never see Pokemon turn up in a standard direct. I was wondering whether it's a, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing that, if, that I was in my thirties when I first played Pokemon, but that was when it came out in nineteen ninety nine because my partner and myself played that. Um, during my son's pregnancy uh and i'm i wonder if that's part partly because now he he is a, a perennial um 
Pokemon player. But again, I also liked that franchise, so I'd played um, Pokemon Snap, one of my favourite games, for, for some bizarre reason. I just absolutely love Pokemon Snap. Uh, I didn't do Stadium, but I did Coliseum on the GameCube. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I think much like Lee, the handheld versions I didn't really play a lot of, just, just because being an adult, you didn't have the time uh, to play those games. So some of the console ones I did play more. But again, I've read some of the comics, some of the manga, watched the films. Um, you know, I had a lot of good good times watching those films with my kids. Uh, we've got we've got like the first few, few games, um, first few games, first few um, DVDs, kind of at least the first three. Pokemon Two Thousand, I think, was one of those. Um, but it was just something that everybody, you know, could. It was a, it was a wholesome, entertaining, um, you know, a family experience. Everybody could be part of it. Really, didn't, didn't you know? There was no no barriers to it uh, in terms of that. Um, you know, it made me scared of wandering through the long grass for many years afterwards. Um, but it, Do you think it's affected your son's choice of degree? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he, he, he's, he's doing um, zoology and conservation, and I, I guess that those themes are inherent to the Pokemon stories, um, you know, getting, a, you know, being part of and uh, living in... Um, tandem with with nature i think that's a big you know the eco theme uh within the games is is a big part of that and kind of like you know responsibility for looking after your environment and 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 the creatures that live in it um so yeah it possibly kind of has a big influence and hopefully a lot of it a lot of a lot of it does revolve around the pokedex and it's research and studying essentially is what it is so yeah you know getting your assignments from um from the professor, from, from professor oak yeah it's like oh let's do some research or let's professor go. willow or professor whatever <laughs> this tree is just going around <laughs> but uh, do you think like they ever like have a club together where all the professors like get together and like have parties i think it's implied it's, that they do i think it's they're usually in the in the, having the party under the other party i don't <laughs> that's a the obscure hitchhiker's guy to the galaxy still <laughs> thank so you ceiling. professor oak is definitely visiting your mom for dinner <laughs> <laughs> So my my favorite thing with Professor Oak though is just like in Pokemon Snap, how often he'd just be like wonderful every time you present a photo, a photo to him. <laughs> just the only like the only voice cliff in the entire game is just him going wonderful. Yeah. I mean, is it bad that I'm really excited for that new game? Oh no, I'm really excited. <laughs> it's like I Pokemon really Snap want to play well. that game. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's been great to hear our memories and as I said it's going to be an enduring franchise mm-hmm. and it's probably definitely going to be around longer much much longer than at us and mm-hmm. it, it's it's this century's version of Walt Disney I think mm-hmm. even though it's a 90, 90s franchise it feels like it's a 2000s onwards kind of I mean Nintendo are definitely the video game equivalent of Disney Yeah, good and bad <laughs> Um, but yeah like i think pokemon is definitely one of those franchises that's gonna sit there next to mickey mouse and and all that just uh living on longer than the creators and everyone who was there to begin with so yeah it's that i mean you know it's the pikachu silhouette is iconic as 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 mickey's now you know on that who's that pokemon Who's that Pokemon? It's Pikachu. No, it's Bulbasaur standing in front of a pot plant. 
I should also reveal. I mean, Lee's revealed his favorite Pokemon, mm-hmm. but I I do have to mine for some reason still is is I do have a a, a lot of um, love for Geodude for some reason. Just I, I don't know whether it's from the anime the way he's they say Geodude Geodude Geodude. Well, I just like that <laughs> idea of a, a boulder with arms. It's like oh, I fully like, admit that my Meowth, my love of Meowth comes from the the anime. <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> so is it the canto form keith or is it the new one? Oh no no well, i'm talking the old school original um geodude <laughs> so for me probably my favorite pokemon is still gonna always be arcanine because i always had dogs growing up and it was kind of like this is like a virtual dog for me and i think he's one of the most prettiest looking of all the pokemon in a weird mm-hmm. kind of way no i can say that yeah it's very that cute. kind of majestic, yeah, kind of tiger dog thing. Yeah, and when you could like finally have your Pokemon follow you around all the time, that mm. was kind of like the Pokemon I always chose was to have <laughs> canine with yourself, Matt. I'm torn between two, but I'd probably say Cubone is my favourite, just because it's just it's just a sad emo <laughs> 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 little, little Pokemon, but also quite adorable. I love it. That is like the darkest moment in the first game, isn't it? When you look about Cubo and Marowak and you're like, ooh, yeah. ooh that's going somewhere I didn't expect um, it to go. Well, a lot of it ties around Lavender Town, which is, you know, one of the creepiest places in a children's game. Yeah. Cubo is the only just... Pokemon toy I own as well, strangely. <laughs> yeah. and I loved how... Um... It was depicted in uh, Detective Pikachu. It was just, it was just really fun. Yeah. <laughs> That's been fascinating to hear all of your thoughts on Pokemon. Um, if you've got any Pokemon thoughts you want to share with us, uh, if you're watching this on the YouTube, there's always the comments box below, or you can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of our social medias. Just drop us a message, or even a hello at geekybrummy.com. We're always there. Who's your favourite Pokemon? <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on the Geeky Brummy podcast. Uh, Lee, where can we find you tweeting about your favourite Pokemon? (laughs) You can find me tweeting about my favourite Pokemon on uh, the Cheap Ferret, uh, which is my personal account. Uh, But I also do updates for my YouTube channel on Twitter at BotherPetFerret, which is also the name of my YouTube channel, where recently, as we discussed earlier, I have put up a video about environmental storytelling in video games through houses specifically. Uh, that one's been very well received and uh, the next video to go up because it's BAFTAs week, gaming BAFTAs week, there is going to be a show all about um, comparing the Game Awards, Jeff Keighley's Game Awards every December to the gaming BAFTAs so that that should be a fun one Sponsored by Ray Shadow Legends <laughs> Sadly sadly, they have not contacted me for a sponsorship yet Is it Raycon earbuds? <laughs> No Skillshare. One's <laughs> no one's contacted me for a sponsorship yet. But if you if you're offering, you know, yeah. I'm 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 open to yeah. And don't forget uh, Lee's game around with yes. the work of Matt every Friday on the Geeky Brummy website. And you can see the games of the week from those roundups in this video if you're watching it or in the podcast, you've already listened to it. I don't know why I'm telling you. It, it, <laughs> it's a few minutes back, just listen to that. <laughs> Says it much better than I do. <laughs> Matt, where can we find you tweeting about your favourite Pokemon? Um, well, 
So you can find me on Instagram at matchstick underscore Matt, where I take on my selfies. And you can find me on Twitter, where I'll be tweeting about Pokemon and selling my selfies as exclusive NFTs <laughs> at uh, Mr. Bat Level. Um, but you can also find me on the Geeky Brummy handle on a Monday, where I talk very random stuff. And you can hit, uh, read my esports update alongside Lee's Gaming Update on a Friday. Awesome. And Keith, where can we find you tweeting about your favourite Pokemon? You can uh, find me tweeting at hardluck underscore hotel uh, on Twitter. You can find me on Instagram as well. I always forget we've got it. With, uh, <laughs> with my, uh, my arty black and white photography on Instagram uh, at, at hardluck hotel no underscore uh if you want to take a look at my uh, youtube channel i recently put up a video there i helped make of a uh, local bearwood mariachi band all filmed remotely in support of uh, anti-racism day uh, a week or so ago um which was a lot of fun to do and you can find me mostly uh on wednesdays on the geeky boomy twitter and a website um putting up a bunch of nonsense about comics i like uh, and mostly comics i like so they tend up to be obscure, weird titles, or all the X Men. Well, not all the X Men, but a lot of the X Men titles over at Marvel. Uh, yeah. You know, I don't play favourites. If I like a book, I'll I'll tell you about it. Um, Your favourite comic of the week has a protagonist that looks very familiar for some very Hey, I, I I am not saying anything about it's it's a, it's a book called Once and Future, um, which is great. It's it's uh, written by an English writer, Kieran Gillen, uh, and there's a character called Duncan. Who who is a redhead, and um, you know, I'm not I'm not saying there's a there's a, a lot of uh, similarities, but I, the first issue I was struck by the idea of like, did, did I did, did I how what what's going on here? Uh, I'm, I'm not fine. as cool it's, as Duncan. It's, I'm, it's fine, know. Keith. Like my game of the week a few weeks ago had you in it as well. So you know. <laughs> I, I have found over Just my many never years. Never see them in the same room. That's I'm, all it is. I've, I'm very easily translated into a two dimensional <laughs> avatar. It's it's. I, I think I'm a, I think I'm a, I'm, a, I'm an escaped character from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, yeah, but yeah, there's there's always some good comics in there. Some some kind of newer ones as well. So uh, if you're interested in, in thinking about picking up some comic books, um, mm-hmm. have a look at that on a Wednesday. And your meanwhile gives you the latest in comic book news as well. Yeah, every every now and again something interesting um, might be a bit in the future or TV related. Um, yeah, so check it out. What about you, Ryan? Where can we find you tweeting about your favourite Pokemon? My favourite Pokemon is Greg Wallace, and I tweet about him every time MasterChef <laughs> UK is on currently. Mainly because he looks like Execute, but just like in a single line. Uh, he's, he's the part of Execute that escaped. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but yeah, you can find me tweeting about MasterChef UK. Semi-finals week is next week, which means the return of MasterChef Bingo. So there is a little bit of a community of us on Twitter who enjoy playing Bastia Bingo, mainly looking for Greg Wallace to shout the time, which happens at least in an episode. <laughs> but um, otherwise, you can find me at Ryan Parrish, which is a pure retweet channel for the Geeky Brummy channel. I do tweets on Tuesdays and occasionally Thursdays when I remember. <laughs> you can also find my lovely partner Vivian doing tweets on Saturdays, and always forget to shout her out. But Viv does a great job managing our. Geeky Games on account on Twitter, which gives you what latest live and virtual events are on. And she does Geeky Brummy on a Saturday, so go and check stuff like that out. Uh, but as always, you can find us on geekybrummy.com, Geeky Brummy on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, 
all of that jazz. And don't forget to like, subscribe, share, tell all your friends about it. Please, it helps. It helps us get the message out and it helps us make even more great quality content that you've been watching or listening to today. Um, Mixcloud version will be up in a few days as well if you want to have an extra version with even more music in even longer version rather than the, the extended podcast that we do once every two weeks. But um, pretty much thanks very much for watching, listening, or whatever way you consume this content. It's been great. And we'll see you next issue. Bye, everybody. Catch them all, folks. Bye.